From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, August 6th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. In Syria today, the defections from the Assad regime keep coming. The latest is the country's prime minister. Bashar Assad and his allies cannot know anymore on whom they can count. We'll have details coming up. Also, cybersecurity and the pesky problem of passwords. Some people would never contemplate sharing them. I know technical people who broke up with their girlfriends because they asked for their Facebook passwords. Also, Ireland's great hope for gold, a female boxer. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Touchdown confirmed. We're safe on Mars. NASA engineers in Pasadena, California, erupted in cheers late last night because of what was happening up on Mars, the safe landing of the mechanical rover called Curiosity. The spacecraft had to go from 13,000 miles an hour to a soft landing in what scientists called seven minutes of terror. Well, everything seemed to go off without a hitch. After it landed, Curiosity even sent a couple of pictures from one of its wheels and of its shadow to confirm that it was actually on Mars's ground. So what's Curiosity going to do next? Bruce Barakloff is project manager for one of the 10 scientific instruments on rover. Bruce, thank you, by the way, for staying awake for us. You've been awake for, like, how long now? Oh, it's been a day and a half or so, but uh, we're so excited it's no problem at all. Yeah, I'm guessing you're one of those people who was whooping it up uh, in Pasadena uh, that we heard in the top there. But you oversee an instrument that is called ChemCam. I gather it shoots lasers. What for? That's correct. Uh, ChemCam is a uh, a new type of technology that's been the first time it's ever been flown. The ChemCam stands for chemistry and camera, and as you might gather from that, it does two things. It tries to get the chemistry of samples out uh, the soils or rocks on the surface of Mars, and it also takes pictures of these uh, targets that we've been shooting. The chemistry part is enabled by a technology called laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy, which is a fancy way of saying that we shoot a very high-energy-density laser at a target. It gets so hot that we turn it into a vapor or a plasma. As that plasma cools in the Martian atmosphere, it gives off photons, light, and based on the color of that light, we can tell what that target is composed of. So our instrument is supposed to reach out up to, say, seven or eight yards 
and be able to identify the composition of soils, rocks, things like that. So just to be clear, um, ChemCam has kind of like a an arm, and it reaches out to grab a bunch of rock and then basically no, vaporize uh, it? that's the arm on the, on the rover, and that does exist. But if you've seen a picture of the rover, you'll notice that there's a tall mast that sticks straight up and there's a white box on the top of that mast. That's where the laser emanates from, so it shoots a laser much like your laser pointer that you use to give presentations. And then we can interrogate the samples remotely, so we don't even have to get near them to be able to tell what's going on at a distance. So when you look at the the vaporized rock, what do you find out? We find out the elemental composition, what elements there are and what the abundance is. And from that, we can deduce what the rock type is. So we can actually tell you what rock type it is based on the chemical composition that we uh, get from the returned light from the uh, target. Now, this is important because the, the place that Curiosity landed is this crater, the Gale Crater, which supposedly has like the, the contents of the geologic history of the entire planet of Mars. When you find out what kind of rock it is that the spectrometer has identified, what do you do with that information? What does it mean? Well, we're hoping to examine the history of this crater and use that as a an analog for the past history of Mars. If you look at the mound of rocks, Mount Sharp or Aeolus Mons, that's the large mountain in the center of the crater, it's layered. And as you drive up through these layers, you're going through the history of Mars into the deep past. So we hope to tell something about past history of the planet and also to be able to identify any potential strata or habitats that might have been places where life could have survived or might have grown in the past or even in the, in the present. That's a good point so, right there. Yeah, NASA is emphasizing the curiosity, the vehicle, is not looking for life on Mars, but it's looking for signs that life may have been possible or may have existed What's the difference? Well, for life to exist, at least life as we know it, you need energy, you need uh, water, and you need certain chemicals, carbon, oxygen, sulfur, nitrogen. So we're looking to see if there is, uh, the, are these trace elements available? We know that there's energy, there could have been, and we know that there was water. So we're not set up analytically. Our instruments are not designed to find microbes or fossils or things like that, but we're equipped to find the elements that life could have evolved from in specific environments that may have been hospitable to those uh, microbes or, or other organisms. And will your ChemCam help do that? Yes, we can detect hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, sulfur, all the building blocks of life. And what we hope to do is find areas of interest at some distance from the rover. And if we do find very interesting things, we'll drive the rover over. And then, as you spoke about earlier, there's an arm that can actually get samples and deposit them into other scientific instruments inside the rover that will do a very detailed analysis of gases and other things that uh, will help us decipher whether these uh, environments might have been hospitable to life in the past or, or have present. By the way, Bruce, ChemCam is not purely an American invention. 
Oh, that's true. We have a very strong team of French and uh, American participants in this. Our French colleagues provided the laser that sits on the top as well as the camera, and the American team provided the uh, computer that runs things as well as the spectrometers that analyze the light that comes back from the targets. A very close collaboration and hope to carry that forward into future missions. What's the interest of the French and of Americans or versus Americans in uh, something like this? Well, science is a universal undertaking, and we have colleagues all over the world that are dying to participate in these very, very interesting missions. We're all interested in the same sorts of things. What's the history of the planets, the uh, history of the solar system? How did life evolve? Is there life elsewhere? The uh, MSL project has a number of foreign countries that have participated in this, Canada, France, Spain, Russia, U.S., so it's a very international national project, and uh, it goes to speak to the universality of scientific interests around the world in these type of problems. Bruce, when do you go off and have well-earned sweet dreams? <laughs> I'm hoping in about six hours, and I hope I, I've been coherent talking to you. <laughs> yes, indeed you have, and congratulations uh, on the well, success. Well, we're very excited, and we hope uh, your listeners will want to follow some of the exciting developments that come up in the next few weeks. Great. Bruce, thank you very much. Thank you, and have a nice day. That's Bruce Barraclough, project manager for the ChemCam, one of the scientific instruments on the rover Curiosity. We've got photos from Curiosity. They're up on our website, theworld.org. And we have these stats from the NASA website. Of all the missions to Mars sent from countries other than the U.S., the vast majority have failed. Less than 10% have reached the red planet. But for U.S. missions, the batting average is far better, greater than 70%, in case anybody's keeping score. Well, a more traditional scorekeeping is underway in London now, and the host of the Olympic Games is celebrating a few days of great success. Athletes from Team GB, Great Britain, went on something of a gold rush over the weekend with wins in track and field, on the water, and on the tennis court. And there were more today. The Brits are approaching 20 gold medals in London, and it seems that one part of the U.K. is especially good at nurturing Olympic champions. Here's the world's Alex Galifant. Yorkshire. You may know it from those boxes of Yorkshire gold tea at the supermarket, but it's a place steeped not in boiling water, like a tea bag in other words, but in glory. Yorkshire is the largest of England's counties. Counties are administrative areas, but they're distinguished more by culture, accent and attitude. This, by the way, is a newly commissioned work called A Symphony for Yorkshire. The county's certainly hitting all the right notes at the Olympics. Gary Verity heads up the tourism organization. Welcome to Yorkshire. The very first medal that Team GB won was from the road cyclist Lizzie Armistead from Yorkshire, uh, Jessica Ennis. Ah, Jessica. Her gold medal in the heptathlon on Saturday night confirmed her status as the Golden Girl of London 2012 and erased any need for her second name, except maybe at the bank. Jessica's from Yorkshire. So are some of Britain's medal-winning rowers. So is Gary Verity, who, when he's not promoting Yorkshire, runs a small sheep farm. Just to keep me fit in my spare time. In fact, so are Britain's Brownlee brothers, Alistair and Johnny. They're Yorkshiremen too. Both are expected to challenge for gold in the men's triathlon tomorrow. As a race of people in Yorkshire, we're very determined, uh, we're very dogged, and uh, you know we don't give in easily. So uh, I think all of those traits put together you know, are key components for true Olympic champions. I guess so. 
If Yorkshire were an independent country, it'd be ranked about number 10 on the list of medal-winning nations at these Olympic Games, so far at least. Right now, for instance, Yorkshire's athletes would be ranked higher even than the mighty Australians. And for the Aussies, simply taking part isn't enough. That's not the Australian ethos, and、um, we are very much about winning. We're unashamedly try to be in the top five. John Coates is the president of the Australian Olympic Committee. Speaking to this program last year, he made clear that winning against Australia's mother nation was also a big part of the plan for London 2012. You're never quite sure of the number of medals that will be required. What I am sure of. Is if we can beat the British, we'll be in the top five. Well, right now Australia is sitting way down the medals list, down in the teens, and it's provoked a bit of soul searching down under. See, Australia's invested huge amounts of money in its elite sports programs over the years, and more often than not, that's resulted in the Aussies doling out heavy defeats to British teams. Gentle listener. I cannot tell you how hard it is not to ring a bell and blow a raspberry and gloat like a stoat right now, but I shan't. At a press conference in London, Australian athlete Mitchell Watt reminded everyone that winning isn't everything. Watt won silver in the men's long jump on Saturday. I think people need to start understanding that、uh, it's not easy to win an Olympic gold medal, and you know there's absolutely nothing wrong with a silver medal. You know, the first question I got was, "Oh, a disappointing result." You know, the team's happy. I'm happy. The head coach is happy. I've got thousands of messages back home that they're happy, and the only people that aren't happy are you guys. He's right, of course. Few of us can know what it is to be an Olympian. Just in case you're wondering, the athlete who won gold in the men's long jump wasn't from Yorkshire, but he was British. <laughs> no, sorry, for the world. I'm Alex Galifant in London. For all of our Olympic coverage, check out theworld.org. World producer Andrea Crossan just returned from the games and has a blog about why she loves Kazakhstan. That's right, Kazakhstan. The problem with passwords coming up on PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality healthcare to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at pih.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is the world. Saudi Arabia is celebrating its first medal of the Olympic Games. The Saudi team won a bronze in show jumping. We're talking horses here. It was a sweet victory, especially considering that one of the team horses failed a drug test earlier this year. Great Britain suffered a shock in boxing. Team GB's middleweight favorite Savannah Marshall was upset by Kazakhstan's Marina Volnova. It was a good day for the Irish, though. Their top-ranked lightweight boxer Katie Taylor won her quarterfinal bout at the games. Taylor is Ireland's top hope for a gold medal, the first since 1996. She was also the country's flag bearer at the opening ceremonies. Barry McGuigan is a former Olympic boxer. He represented Ireland in the 1980 Moscow Olympics. He's also the former world featherweight boxing champion. He is now in Southeast Kent. Barry McGuigan, I know you watched today's bout with Katie Taylor. How's your girl looking? Wow, she looks amazing. This girl is is pretty special. He says she's four times world champion, five times European champion. Has captained the Irish football team, played Gaelic football. She's a a, a multi sports woman, a beautiful girl, good looking, and、um, what an athlete! And she she boxed and beat、uh, former world bronze medalist 
and Natasha Jonah from Great Britain today. And you'd think the place had been taken over by the whole of Ireland. It was just incredible. The woman, as you mentioned, from Great Britain, who she faced today, Katie faced today, is Natasha Jonas, who actually had some really nice things to say about her. She said, I came here the fittest, the leanest, the healthiest, the smartest boxer I could be. And she, meaning Katie Taylor, is still the best. What is it that makes her so good? I think the fact that her dad was a, um, a pretty good light heavyweight. She looked at her dad, she had a boxing when she was a kid. She started boxing at 12, but she was also playing other sports. She's got great hand-eye coordination. She's got great foot movement. She moves into position and punches, and then she double faints with her feet. I've watched her sparring some of the men in, in the Irish elite team, and she's, she's equal to them. She's brilliant. And what the dad has done is he's a, it obviously impounded the technique, technique, technique over the years and done loads of drills with her. But her style and her technique is amazing. I think her, her dad was in the boxing ring with her today, wasn't he, in the corner? Yeah, he, he's in the corner with uh, with the assistant national coach, a guy called Zor Antia. Is it is it those attributes of her and her story and her family that you think uh, have brought Ireland around her? Or is it more the fact that she's the poster girl for boxing as a women's Olympic sport now and she has the best uh, best chance at the gold? She is the poster girl because she's four times world champion and five times European champion. She's also a very nice person. She's very humble, doesn't get emotional. She's, you know, even when she's fighting, I mean, the, the pressure that was on her shoulders for today's event must have been extraordinary. She was able to keep a cool head, box magnificently, keep her discipline the whole way through. And, uh, you know, I mean, she's an outstanding talent. She might even be in with a chance of winning the Val Barker Award for the best boxer of the tournament. Obviously, they take into consideration what she's done in the past, but she's looked equal to any of the men here uh, stylistically. She's been punch perfect the whole way through. Barry, you've been boxing a long time. As we said, you competed in the 1980 Olympics in Moscow. Do you ever think you'd see the day when a woman would be in the boxing ring at the Olympics? I didn't. I know that it's not really well known, but it was tried way back in 1904. It was tried as a trial event, but didn't really happen. It weren't competitive enough. But this is the first time it's it's been introduced. And if it is a success, which I know it would be, it's already been a resounding success so far. They will take in all the divisions, all the, the other weight divisions for 2016 in Rio. I would never have been a boxing fan. I remember Lisa going to um, the Golden Gloves with the with the late great Floyd Patterson in 1995, and I was really alarmed at how good the girls were. But I sort of went off it again. I saw a couple of bouts where the girls were too good uh, for their opponents, and it was too one sided. And then Katie Taylor watching her train and and, and box has completely converted me. And anybody that is, has any reservations about whether the girls are good enough, they just got to clap eyes on, on Katie Taylor. She's an exceptional talent and they will be converted. She's brilliant and I'm pretty sure she'll win the gold medal. You're going to be watching on Wednesday for the next bout? Most definitely. I'll be there. All right. Thank you. Barry McGuigan is a former Olympic boxer, former world featherweight boxing champion and a boxing commentator. So nice to talk to you. Congratulations, by the way. Thanks, Lisa. Well, the name like Mullins, I know where you're from, too. (laughs) You got my number. Thanks a lot, Barry. Good luck. Women's boxing is popular in many unlikely places, such as in Calcutta, India, where Shatila Bebe boxes. She's been known to put her skills to use outside the boxing ring, too. 
Chelsea bus mein chara hai. Bus mein hamne Chelsea chara hai. Hamne there was somebody in the bus, and then the person snatched the bag and ran. I was very angry. I ran. I nabbed him and I beat him up, and I saw that blood was coming out from his nose, and then it was all right. That's Indian boxer Shatila Bebi speaking in 2006. We've got a report and a slideshow on the Muslim female boxers of Calcutta at theworld.org. Don't call it a comeback. And we're sticking with an Olympic theme for today's GeoQuiz. We head to Jamaica, which has plenty to celebrate today. Jamaicans are marking 50 years of independence from the British. What they're really excited about on this day, though, is the local hero, Usain Bolt. He won the gold in the men's 100-meter final yesterday and retained his title as the fastest man on the planet. Even Jamaican Prime Minister Portia Simpson-Miller took time out of her busy schedule to praise Usain Bolt. I am so proud. I'm so happy and pleased at the victory of Usain. It's really, really a serious achievement, an excellent achievement. And when we say Jamaican, the last four letters in the word Jamaican are I-C-A-N. And I always say I can. Usain Bolt's hometown of Sherwood Content is also thrilled. And we thought about asking you to name that town for today's GeoQuiz. Seemed kind of tough, though. So how about naming a location instead that's just a short distance from Bolt's birthplace? It is a bay. That's 50% of the answer right there. It's also a popular tourist destination. Christopher Columbus called it the Fairweather Gulf when he went there in 1494. Got it yet? We'll be back with the answer later in the program. You're listening to The World on PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on The World, Jamaica goes wild for Usain Bolt. I picked up the morning paper this morning, and the guys that usually sell me the paper are saying, he is the world boss. That's how much they're celebrating him. They are just thinking to themselves, this is a guy that put us on the map. Celebrating Jamaican sprinters and 50 years of independence, coming up. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world. 
focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. In the Middle East, heavily armed gunmen attacked an Egyptian border station last night near Israel and the Gaza Strip. They killed 18 Egyptian soldiers. Then they headed for the crossing into Israel. The Israeli Air Force bombed the attackers. They killed eight of them. Israeli Defense Minister Ehud Barak called the incident a wake-up call for the new Egyptian government. The Muslim Brotherhood is the party of Egypt's president. It accused Israeli intelligence of orchestrating the attack. Hamas, which controls Gaza, condemned the killings. And today, it sealed up a warren of smuggling tunnels that run under Gaza-Egypt border. Cairo claims that the gunmen had used these underground links to reach Egypt. The world's Matthew Bell has more now from Jerusalem. Egyptian officials called last night's attack a cowardly act committed by infidels. President Mohamed Morsi said those who carried out this crime will pay dearly, and he vowed to impose full control over these areas of the Sinai Peninsula. Israelis certainly appreciate that sentiment, but they'd like to see a lot more action on the ground. Officials here have been warning for months about the security threat from Islamic extremists based in Sinai. Israeli Defense Minister Ehud Barak said the attack could have been a lot worse. Perhaps, Barak said, this will be a proper wake-up call to the Egyptians. Israel and Egypt have mutual interests in the Sinai. Israel shares a long border with the desert region, while Egyptian security forces have had frequent gun battles with criminal gangs and extremist groups. Both countries would like to see a return of law and order. The evidence so far uh, suggests that this is not a priority for Egypt. Ofer Salzberg is a Middle East analyst with the International Crisis Group. He says Israel has encouraged the Egyptians to deploy additional army battalions and police forces to Sinai, but so far they haven't done so. What Israel is trying to do now is to convince uh, Cairo that uh, such uh, incidents as the recent one mean that Egypt has to increase its uh, efforts even more and that this is urgent. But this isn't so much an issue of will, says Stephen Cook of the Council on Foreign Relations. It's about whether post-revolutionary Egypt has the capacity to deal with Sinai's complex challenges. The residents of the Sinai have long felt that they have been neglected by the central government in Cairo. They have been abused by the police. There is significant uh, socioeconomic problems throughout the Sinai, but in particular, northern Sinai. Cook says that includes weapons smuggling, drug trafficking, and human trafficking. Then add to that mix the various jihadi and extremist groups hostile to both Israel and the Egyptian government. I don't think that firepower, even if the Egyptians could bring significant amount of firepower to bear in Sinai is going to resolve these problems. Both Egyptian and Israeli officials have said that Palestinian militant groups from Gaza are active in the Sinai Peninsula, but the Islamist group Hamas that controls Gaza quickly and resoundingly condemned yesterday's attack. That could have something to do with the fact that Israel holds Hamas responsible for any attacks that originate in the Gaza Strip. But it could also be a sign that Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi is sending a message to Hamas to rein in Palestinian groups that might be planning more attacks against Israel. Again, Stephen Cook. 
both Egypt and Hamas have a common interest in not allowing this kind of thing to happen. And the fact that uh, Egyptian soldiers were killed in the process makes it easier for him to apply the pressure on the Hamas leadership in Gaza. Whether it's about sending a message or just a security precaution, Egypt moved quickly after yesterday's attack to close its border crossing with the Gaza Strip indefinitely. That's a serious move because the crossing at Rafah is the only one in Gaza not controlled by Israel. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. The White House said today that Syria's government is crumbling from within. That's after the latest defection from Bashar al-Assad's government. His prime minister, Riyadh Hijab, has jumped ship. He fled to Jordan. Hijab is the highest level Syrian to switch sides. Others include a general and two top diplomats. Reem Alaf is an associate fellow with the London-based think tank Chatham House. She's Syrian herself. She says that the latest defection is damaging. Today is really a big blow in the sense that it will not make the regime crumble, but it is absolutely humiliating for the regime to have its own prime minister defecting. Although the prime minister does not wield nearly as much power as the president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad. So aside from, I mean, the humiliation factor, I guess it would be perhaps mitigated by the fact that, that this man has only been prime minister for a couple of months. Apparently he was planning his defection the entire time. But what real kind of wounds could this create? in the regime? The regime does not like to hear such news because it has been trying to convince the people who still support it that this is all a conspiracy, that this is all a war against Syria led by the United States and its allies, led by Saudi Arabia and Qatar. Defections like these from the heart of the government, precisely because he was so new, serve to show that they are not really in control. So it is very difficult for the Syrian regime to keep claiming to its supporters that the bad guys from outside are trying to target us because of our positions. And there are still significant amounts of people in Syria who are buying the regime line, who only watch Syrian television or Adunya television, which is allied to the regime, and who desperately need to believe that this is all some big conspiracy. When members of the government are beginning to defect and are beginning to speak out, whatever the reason they're doing that, be that because they think the ship is sinking and they need to jump out, or perhaps they really believe that they should not be in such a government. The point is that when that happens, the whole line about the conspiracy is getting more and more difficult to keep on defending to the Syrian population, which is still holding on to this regime. What does it matter if the Syrian population holds on to this regime? I mean, there is there is plenty of proof of what the regime has done. One would think that a PR blow might not make much of a difference. But are you saying that for Bashar al-Assad, the hopes and support of those within inside Syria is pretty much all he has to prop him up now? The regime still has a lot to prop it up, mainly the army and the intelligence. But also, it does very much matter that a portion of the Syrian population still supports it. This is why for the past year and a half, we've seen repeatedly, especially at the beginning, a lot of organized rallies in support of the regime, a lot of public appearances by different members and by Assad himself, and a very strong drive in the media, both the official media, such as Sana and Syrian television, and the unofficial media, such as Adunya, and their allies, Iranian television, Russian television, etc. They have been on a very determined drive to convince many people in Syria that this is all a conspiracy. Does anyone in the Syrian government hold as much power overtly or covertly as the president does, Bashar al-Assad? 
Nobody in the entire Syrian regime, let alone the government, has any real power outside the higher echelons of the regime, which means the Bashar Assad force, the heads of the intelligence and the heads of the army, who are very close and loyal allies so far. In times of crises like this one for the regime, uh, not a single official really matters at all. If you notice, even officials like the foreign minister uh, goes for months or weeks at a time without being seen, and suddenly he is sent to Iran to make a press conference. So when they need them, they show them in front of the media, but the real decisions and the real power, without any doubt, has always been with the regime and not with the government. So as more and more members of the regime fall away, does Bashar al-Assad of Syria look more and more like Muammar Gaddafi in Libya during his last days? The Syrian regime does not look at all like the Libyan regime. On the contrary, on the Libyan regime side, we had very steady defections throughout the crisis. In Syria, this has been very few defections for a number of reasons, not least of which being the fact that when you defect from the Syrian regime and the government, you have to make sure that your entire family is accounted for because the repercussions are immense. This is not so much about the regime losing power. It is not so much about a blow to its reputation. It is about not being able to convince the rest of the people that it is holding together. And more importantly, it is about the fact that Bashar Assad and his allies cannot know anymore on whom they can count. That's Reem Alaf, who's an associate fellow with the London-based think tank Chatham House. We spoke with her from Vienna. Reem Alaf, thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's face it, sometimes people don't give a heck of a lot of thought to choosing a computer password. In fact, they're often as easy to guess as 12345 or simply the word password. But even if your password is strong, there are more and more cases of hackers getting a hold of your personal data. Now a group of Slovenian designers says, admit it, online privacy is a joke. So they ask, why not give up your password in the name of art? Nate Tabak has our story. Don't ask Taulant Ramabaya for one of his passwords. Nobody who's technical would ask anybody about their passwords. Ramabaya runs a startup in Pristina. I chatted with him at one of the regular tech community gatherings he organizes in Kosovo's capital. I mean, you don't ask people for their passwords. I mean, I know technical people who broke up with their girlfriends because they asked for their Facebook passwords. Back in the privacy of my apartment, I'm about to reveal one of mine in a very public way. So if you value your internet security, don't try this at home, or anywhere else for that matter. I'm now at the Slovenian website, trustmeitsart.com. I've just submitted an old password of mine, one that I haven't used in years. You can see it in an online gallery, along with more than 600 other submissions. Now you might be wondering at this point, why on earth would anyone do this? The rush that you get when you enter your password and you you find it in the in, in the gallery and it's and you're not, it's always staring at you it's always there whenever you go back you see it there and you feel vulnerable. That's Yure Martinez. I spoke to him on Skype. He and fellow graphic design students Clement Ilovar and Nes Prach created Trust Me It's Art in Slovenia's capital Ljubljana. The site launched in June. But what's the point? Ilovar says the idea is to make users aware that their private information isn't all that private. Like Facebook and other applications and, and platforms, you, you just give some 
information about yourself and this is like well basically you're giving probably much more than, than you know and we, we're just more honest we're, we're saying like we don't want to use it but this is the the biggest information you can have and give to some uh, some some other person on the internet the three insist that they're not doing anything nefarious with the information and they warn that users should not feel secure about anything submitted to the site it's not really safe and that was not that also, was not the point of it. that was not the point yeah maybe it's not smart to 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 tell that <laughs> <laughs> all submissions are anonymous and they're continuously shuffled but there aren't any special security precautions Ilovar says he wouldn't mind if a hacker did exploit the passwords. That would be a positive uh, reaction uh, through us and through the page, through the project. So if anybody does that, well, we don't support it, but it, it would be a positive thing to the project. Positive in the sense that it would underscore just how insecure the internet is. That statement really doesn't hold any water. Dan Gooden is the security editor of the U.S. technology website Ars Technica. It reminds me of somebody saying that to demonstrate and raise awareness about uh, street crime, you should take a taxi, uh, drop you off in the middle of the most dangerous neighborhood at 3 a.m. in the morning and see if you can leave. And, you know, if you get beat up, it'll show you just how uh, dangerous street crime can be. Even though the password submissions on Trust Me It's Art are anonymous, Gooden says they're easily exploited. Hackers will cut and paste every single password that is displayed by these artists in this project, and they will be trying those passwords in the future. In other words, submitting a real password to Trust Me It's Art is offering hackers another tool in their arsenal for future raids. Taulant Ramabaya, who runs the startup in Pristina, says even posting a fake password is risky. Even if it's not your password, it's still probably mentally, psychologically connected to what you do or your actual password or something. So if somebody really wanted to get your password, they could probably use that as a starting point. The creators of Trust Me It's Art have no plans of shutting down the site if the passwords are exploited. And once they've collected more passwords, they'd like to display them as part of a physical art installation. For The World, I'm Nate Tabak, Pristina. When it comes to the Internet, being safe isn't always easy. Whether it's a bot or some spammer, it's often pretty tough to tell if someone or something online is legit. Well, that got us talking here in the newsroom about our Internet woes, and you're likely thinking about yours. We'd like to hear your story. Have you accidentally given up your personal information to an Internet villain? If so, how did you get the problem sorted out? Or did you get it sorted out? You can share your story at theworld.org. Our global hit and more coming up on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Hope you haven't forgotten our GeoQuiz today, which takes us to the Caribbean. It's Independence Day today in Jamaica, and the country's celebrating its 50th anniversary of independence from Britain. 
But that's not all that people are talking about, not by a long shot. Jamaica has bragging rights now to having the fastest runners in the world. Yesterday, Usain Bolt took the gold for the men's 100-meter final, with fellow Jamaican Johan Blake winning the silver. And earlier, Shelly Ann Fraser-Price won the gold in the women's 100-meter. Zara Burton is from Jamaica. She's a freelance journalist there. How are people celebrating today? Oh, my God. I picked up the morning paper this morning, and the guys that usually sell me the paper are saying... He is the world boss. That's how much they're celebrating him. They are just thinking to themselves, this is a guy that put us on the map. Here we are, a population of 2.7 million people. And yet, this is all people are talking about. Usain Bolt from the little land of Jamaica. And now, are they also talking about Johan Blake? Because you have, to, you have to have some heart for him. This is a guy who is a training partner of Usain Bolt, took the silver, not too shabby. Is there uh, any kind of a rivalry between them, or at least between their fans there? Or are they pretty much in sync? No, you know what? People are so proud of both of them. There was even some anticipation that maybe Johan Blake would beat out Usain Bolt, especially because in the Olympic trials here about a couple weeks ago, he was the one that beat Usain Bolt in both the 100 meter and the 200 meter, which also will be run later on this week. So it'll be interesting to see the matchup between them for that race as well. But as far as the 100 meter is concerned, the fact that Usain Bolt won first and that Johan Blake was second in the silver, that's what Jamaicans wanted to see. One and two, Usain Bolt and Johan Blake. You're forgetting Shelley Ann Fraser-Price. No, not forgetting her at all. She is kudos, hats off to her, completely proud. There was her mother on the TV screen saying that she was so nervous in looking. And when she saw her daughter on that screen winning gold, it was such a moment of celebration throughout the entire island. And as you said, because we're in the 50th independence, there is just pandemonium here in Jamaica. Can you explain, Zara, how it is that, uh, as you say, a place that has a population of 2.7 million people, a pretty small country, how has it managed to produce so many world-class sprinters? Everybody's been trying to figure that out, and I tell people all the time, I have a funny feeling it has to do with just the kind of people that we are. We tend to be a very aggressive and ambitious lot, and a very open lot as well to various and differing experiences, because if you have to remember the bobsled team, what were we doing in the Winter Olympics? We wanted to go there, so we made sure that we qualified to go there. We're just very open to new experiences, and because we know we're so firmly planted in the area of track and field, we invest quite a bit, although, tell the truth, we could use a lot more investment in the sporting arena but we invest in these sports we invest in these athletes and we really give them all our blessings to go forward to the various olympics especially this one here in london zara i love the way you you abandon any kind of shred of impartiality in this you're a proud jamaican (laughs) true and true (laughs) (laughs) well thanks very much congratulations uh, to you and your countrymen and women zara burton a journalist in kingston jamaica and by the way, the answer to our GeoQuiz is Jamaica's Montego Bay, not far from Sherwood Content. Zara, Sherwood Content being the home of? Usain Bolt. Yep, the fastest sprinter in the world. Thanks very much, Zara Burton. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you, too. Bye-bye. And finally today, we remember a legend in Mexico. Her name was Chavela Vargas, and she was a renowned singer of rancheras, torch songs. Vargas was also known for the company she kept. She was friends with renowned artists such as Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera, and she herself was a major figure in Mexico City's art scene in the mid-20th century. Vargas died this weekend. She was 93 years old. Here she is in her last performance ever in Mexico City. Go on. 
dentro de mí Te juro corazón Que no es falta de amor Pero el mejor así the late Chavela Vargas on stage in Mexico City this past April. Reporter Beto Arcos, you were a lucky man to have a seat at that concert. Can you describe what it was like? It was electrifying. She came out on stage on a wheelchair and she was surrounded by friends. It was the most touching experience I've had. People just roared in the and you can feel the electricity. You could feel the intensity of this woman coming out and giving her soul to those present at the at that space, which is the Palace of Fine Arts, a space that she was not exactly a regular at. She only gained attention to perform at this venue in the early 90s, but it was pretty much forbidden to her up until then. It was forbidden to her for what reason? Well, she was a singer with pants on, singing the most essential of Mexican songs, rancheras. These these are songs that were typically performed by either male or women, but in dress. And so how dare she do this? How dare she come out in pants and sing these songs that are so chauvinistic, that all about male power? And she she would not switch the pronoun. She was speaking about women. She was not only dressed in pants. She would smoke cigars. She would drink while she was on stage. Was this really what prevented her from making it to this major venue until she was that old? Yeah. You know, she performed in theaters, but she was never allowed to be on television. TV uh, channels, well, the, the main one, Televisa, never really uh, invited her to come and perform uh, at any of the TV shows. And and theaters really didn't, you know, the sort of respectable middle class uh, type of spaces didn't really have her on. But it wasn't really until the early 90s when she, in a sense, uh, renewed, her career was renewed. Despite the controversy of how she handled herself, what her sexuality was, she did come out publicly as lesbian when she was 81 years old, uh, as she wrote her autobiography. But it seemed as if her popularity really endured among Mexicans, and in fact, pretty much all over the world. She recorded about 80 albums in her lifetime. Can you maybe speak personally, Beto? You've spoken to us a lot about a lot of musicians. Uh, what did you find so moving about her voice? The best way to describe her intensity, her power to touch people like me, like anybody, is that she sang with an emotion that was unlike any other voice that I've ever heard. The way she did it is she literally undressed the songs. The great writer Carlos Monsivais said she sang rancheras with the nakedness of the blues. Let's hear a little bit more of Chavela Vargas as we close out the show today. Chavela Vargas died yesterday at the age of 93. Beto Arcos, reporter and frequent contributor to the world and one of Chavela Vargas's appreciators. Thank you very much, Beto. It's an honor, Lisa. Bajabas del templo un día Llorona cuando al bajar yo te vi Bajabas 
You can see Chavela Vargas performing. We've got a video of her in concert at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues, the Carnegie Corporation, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the Annenberg Foundation, the Freeman Foundation, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.